welcome to another episode of Why Wait, the real-time analytics podcast by Rockset. We invite business leaders, app development thought leaders, and analytics specialists to share their stories with the world, providing insights into your peers' application analytics improvement strategies. My name is Gio Tropiano. I'm with Rockset. Thank you for being with us today. Before I kick it off, if you're listening to this and have a question uh, or want to comment on what you've heard, please do so uh, in our community Slack channel at rockset-community.slack.com or you feel free to tweet at us at uh, rockset-cloud on Twitter. With me is my co-host, Druba Borkathor, Rockset co-founder and CTO. Thank you, sir, for being with us and, uh, and taking the time to chat. In this episode, we're taking the time to talk about cybersecurity. Our guest is a cybersecurity technical lead focused on um, AI and ML with experience in data science and engineering at FireEye. Uh, he was a principal research engineer at ZeroFox and is now director of engineering and data science at Picnic. I wanna welcome you. Uh, Matt Price to Rockset Podcast. Thanks. Glad to be here. Pleasure is all ours. Thank you so much for being here. Um, we're excited to have this conversation. I'm going to jump right into it. You have a, a real wide set of experience in the security space, starting with FireEye and now Picnic, uh, Picnic Score. Um, in the security domain and, and data and analytics, you know, right now, you know, that reigns supreme, right? In in, uh, in security. So the recent trend has been to detect and, and kind of find security issues as soon as they occur. Tell us um, about some of these trends um, and kind of how that um, data processing in real time um, is, is affecting that. Yeah, um, actually one of the trends I'm the most interested in um, and that's really been accelerated um, due to COVID is the the trend of workers uh, working from home now. Um, and what this has done in the cybersecurity realm is you now have this blurring of not just your work systems, but now your employees' home systems. Uh, so you could, the surface of attack now for a threat actor has expanded just from essentially the perimeter that a company controls to now they have to start thinking about how do you handle the employee's perimeter now as well. Um, so being able to detect those security uh, incursions that are happening um, and identifying them, not just at work, but now at employees' houses is, is becoming critical within the, the cybersecurity industry. Um, something else that we're seeing is that due to all the like various hardening measures that companies have been putting into place and the um, really the efficacy of the tools that defenders can use today, um, we're shrinking the amount of time that it takes to detect an actual threat actor um, within a company's uh, systems um, or their network. So because of this, uh, threat actors are realizing this and they are now moving more quickly. Um, so once they compromise a company's systems, they're, they're immediately starting to you know, exfiltrate data or execute their ransomware attack or whatever it may be. Um, so this means that defenders need to be reacting um, quicker um, rather than you know, kind of before what would happen is that there'd be kind of the recon phase that threat actors would kind of take their time. Um, now, essentially, they get in and execute their attack. Um, another huge shift that we're seeing 
is uh, the move to cloud and not just cloud, but in particular serverless architecture. Um, and this is very hard from a security perspective to, to track because you have all these different systems and things coming online and then shutting down. Um, and because of that, it's very hard to understand the current state of your system at any time. And from a security perspective, you need to have an accurate state of your, of your system and your network and your infrastructure um, in order to defend it. Um, and to know where the threat actors possibly could be could be at. Um, something that I'm I'm quite interested in, there's a couple of different names for it. The one I like the best is called extended detection response. Um, but what this has to do with is correlating disparate events that you're seeing. So companies have done a really good job at securing, say, their network or their servers or you know, their persistent storage. But what they haven't done a great job of doing so far really is looking at the different events that are occurring in these different domains, pulling that information together and then giving that holistic picture of, hey, like this is what's happening. Um, you know, a, a really simple example of this could be uh, an attacker connecting out to, you know, some, some other server. Like what you're gonna see is there is probably a binary that got dropped onto a server that is unexpected, but that's not, you know, server admins do that all the time. But then you also see this network connection out to, you know, maybe this host in, in Russia, and this company doesn't have any infrastructure in Russia. Well, those two signals pretty much told you, hey, we've been compromised, most likely a threat actor, like installed a backdoor and is now like trying to connect in from Russia. Um, what's even more important about, in my opinion, extended detection response is it's also addressing the alert fatigue problem that we have in cybersecurity. Um, I would say a lot of security vendors are very good at throwing alerts. Uh, the number of alerts that are actually actionable um, and are something that a defender actually needs to take action on are very low compared to the number of alerts getting thrown. Um, so by joining up these different events and actually essentially having another alerting layer um, on top of these like lower level alerts um, is one way to reduce kind of that alert fatigue and really throw like higher fidelity alerts. Um, and then really the last trend that we're seeing is uh, automation. And this is for a couple of different reasons. One is that there's just not enough cybersecurity professionals um, out there uh, to deal with all the all the attacks that are happening. So we need to really remove that human in the loop. So this is being able to throw the correct analytics and um, alerts that you can then take action on to have other tools then go and take that automated uh, remediation response. Um, so those are just a couple of the, the trends that we're seeing today. Yeah, so it, as your as cybersecurity has gotten more and more efficient, I should say how cyber attacks have gotten more and more effective. It's like we have to get more and more efficient at understanding what's happening more quickly in order to make better decisions. Um, and the last thing we need to do is deal with uh, alert fatigue, right? Where you know you're getting all this information coming at you, and you don't know which ones you should be acting upon. So let's just automate it all and have, have the computers handle it. Um, you know, one, one of the quotes that we had uh, on one of our recent episodes, Matt, is that real-time analytics is hard. Um, one of your, at one of your stints, uh, specifically FireEye, you were building out ingesting software, uh, which you mentioned you received like hundreds of millions of events per day. So tell me, why is that hard? Yeah, this, this problem in particular is extremely difficult. Um, the data that we're ingesting were all of the various logs that our very large enterprise clients had 
we're generating from their security tools. Um, and this is really kind of the, this actually gets back to extended detection response, but what we were trying to do were take all these different logs, um, analyze them holistically and point out with very high fidelity alerts where um, our clients like SOC or um, like our internal SOC need to go look at to find like the actual threat actor and remediate the issue. Um, so the first, the first problem we had here is that <laughs> There, there is no consistent format across security tools for communicating data. So, and some of the logs were just completely unstructured. It'd just be a string of text. Um, some of the tools were nicer to work with and they, it was more of a unstructured data or a little bit more of unstructured data problem. We're dealing with, you know, like JSON logs, for example. Um, but just taking all these different logs and then turning them into a common structured format that we could then work with downstream was one of the biggest issues that we had to deal with. Um, beyond that, and in, in cybersecurity, with all these logs being generated by our large by these large enterprise clients, it is very much needle in the haystack problem. Um, you know, we might see hundreds of millions of events in a day, and honestly, none of them, most likely, not all of them are benign. Um, so, you know, maybe in like a, over the course of like a month or two, maybe three, three or four events out of those, like at that point, billions of events would actually be what we cared about. Um, and when we found those, we needed to let our clients know immediately, uh, because at that point, if we're seeing it from uh, the different security tools that our clients own, that meant that attacker was within their system. And once they're within their system, they're probably moving laterally, laterally dropping in back doors and so on. And then remediation comes that much more difficult. Um, the other big issue with, uh, with this particular problem was, um, the the time aspect of these logs which is absolutely critical um and because we were ingesting these logs from client sites there was a latency between some of the different tools um so for example like the firewall logs tended to come in very quickly but then the server logs tended to be a little bit delayed and what we were trying to do were was correlate those the network logs happening at the same time as the server logs so now you've got this time series problem and the events are arriving out of order. So how do you resolve that issue? Um, that was one of the, the major issues that we had to deal with. Um, and then lastly, these were all streaming analytics. We, um, just because this was fairly sensitive information, our clients didn't want us actually persisting any of this data. So as data was coming in, we're needing to analyze it, um, determine what kind of action needed to happen, which is usually throwing an alert to a client. Um, and then that was it. We we're, were done. We couldn't we couldn't retain those logs. Um, so there are quite a few issues going on there, and just like the volume of events coming in, along with those other problems, made it a, a very difficult problem. Yep. Thanks, Matt, for explaining that. Real-time analytics seems to be hard for out-of-order reasons, for semi-structured data. You said, and then the volume of data is very high. Um, I understand. So let me take a little bit. Uh, different tack on this, saying that there is yet another problem that could affect some of these real-time analytics uh, setups. The problem of um, finding good people who can actually build these systems, who can run these systems at scale, who can make sure the system is up and running 24 by 7. Um, because like you said, when data is coming in in a high stream, if you lose your service for a few minutes, that could be a very black hole for the user. So how, how difficult is it to find people uh, or find engineers 
uh, to run these systems and build these systems for you? And how much, um, how much does it cost you to, or, or what percentage of time and effort do you, do you spend or you used to spend getting the team right um, and the human cost of getting these real-time analytic systems in place? That, that's a great question. Um, in my experience, it's very hard to find the right people to build out these, these I, I call them data pipelines, but essentially these streaming analytic platforms, especially at scale. Um, I mean, the first problem is you need someone that has that experience, um, especially working at scale. And there's just that not that many people that have it, especially at, at a large scale. Um, that's just kind of the, the nature of the industry that we work in. Um, the other thing that gets really tricky is you need a multidisciplinary team. Um, you can't just have like, you know, one or two software engineers. You're going to need data engineers. You're going to need DevOps. Um, you're going to need analysts at the end of the day because they're going to be the ones usually consuming the, the results of the system. Um, so you need to be able to pull together this disparate team um, and have them all working towards the same end goal. Um, so finding the right people, um, especially with the kind of experience that you need, is extremely difficult. And these people know it. Um, and because they are so limited, they're they're expensive at the end of the day. Um, so because of that, like just overall, the total cost of, of ownership, when you talk about the human element to these platforms is, I have found to be fairly large. Yeah, some of this human capital, you might also need to invest just because your data is coming in various different forms and shapes, right? So there is, like you said, the data pipelines need to be set up to flatten the data structure or kind of clean some data before you can actually make analytics out of it. What about, because for, for, for most of these security use cases, data comes from different um, sources, like you mentioned, right? They could be coming from firewalls, they could be coming from other um, event capturing system that you have in place. How important is it for your um, analytic systems to be able to handle all the semi-structured data or the fluid nature of data? Do you use any tools or do you need, do you use special software to be able to um, handle these kind of events? Do you put them in a relational database? Do you uh, make a lot of ETL queries to be able to uh, put it in a NoSQL database or what kind of backend platform are the ones that you have used in FireEye or at other places you have worked? Can you share any insights into that? Absolutely. So one of the things that we did in the past, and this was actually my, my first foray into uh, real-time analytics was essentially doing the, we had um, at the time, it was a batch-based system, um, ETLs into a data warehouse. Um, the business obviously didn't didn't like that because we were running it once an hour and they and they wanted to have it like immediately on demand. They wanted to know the answer to to their questions. Um, so what we ended up doing there is we just ended up implementing a, a basic streaming system. It was all custom built at the time. This was almost ten years ago now, or seven years ago, something like that. Uh, but it was a while a while back, and like this wasn't something that was really being done then. Um, so everything we ended up building was custom. Um, we, and it ended up all just ending up in, in a relational database after we did a lot of transformations. But all this was happening in, in real time. So we were able to give up-to-date answers. Um, starting to move through time now, the, the next kind of like place that we've, we ended up was starting to use data lakes. 
Um, so data lakes were really useful because we were essentially able to just take all this raw data and shove it off into like, you know, like an AWS S3 or um, a GCP cloud storage type system, and then build um, tools on top of that to essentially at query time, go and pull all that data and analyze it. Um, the problem with that is that running those queries took a long time. Um, we had all the data, so we were able to do it, but you also have to process all that data. Um, so now you're building out like this huge distributed system on, on top of a data lake in order to, to answer these queries. Um, where I've been moving to recently, actually still kind of following that data lake paradigm, but using that just as um, essentially cold storage. And what we do is we use now a serverless architecture to stream these events through and then using various backends, usually some kind of like time series database, sometimes NoSQL, sometimes a relational database, um, to store the results kind of as they stream through. So Matt, before Picnic, which is the, the project that you're on now, um, you're at ZeroFox, um, which yeah. is also a cybersecurity company. What um, real-time analytics work did you experience while you were there? Yeah, so Zero, ZeroFox is a fascinating company. Um, what ZeroFox is focused on is identifying threats on social media. So this could be like, you know, physical threats, phishing. Um, some of our clients are very interested in scams that are being conducted in their name, um, impersonations, malware, and, and so on. Uh, and then we looked at a bunch of other sources as well, both both public and non-public. So this would be you know, like a paste-in or a showed-in as public sources, or um, like an internal source could be that company's email. Um, so we had a, you know, just a number of different data sources coming in. What was interesting about Zeropox is the way that they structured their contracts. Um, and this is actually very similar to the FireEye problem that I had, is that we could not persist any of that data. Um, so again, it was coming in, we got one chance to look at it, and after that, it was gone. Um, it, was, it was never coming back to us. So while I was there, I, I ran the data science team. And we were using um, AI and uh, machine learning to essentially augment the data that was coming through. So the way that I, we were approaching this problem is that we used the, like, essentially some kind of model to add various analytics on top of the raw data that we, were, that we had coming in. And then ZeroFox had built off this sophisticated rule engine um, that would essentially look at this data as it came in. Um, and then based on the various uh, analytics that we had put on those events, that would then cause alerts to be generated. And the reason that we're using um, machine learning for this is that in social media um, and, and these other sources as well, such as Pastebin, context matters. Um, so if you take like a physical threat example, um, you know, maybe there's two friends talking on Twitter. One of them says, hey, I'm going to kill you tonight. But it's in reference to a previous tweet that his friend had made that said, hey, do you want to play, you know, like some video game, um, like Call of Duty? Um, like, yes, the word kill is in there. And if you were blindly um, trying to just analyze this text, you would say, oh, you know, they use the word kill. This is a physical threat against this individual. Well, put in context, it's, it's not a threat. It's, it's just two people talking. Um, versus something a little bit more sinister, which is where maybe a CEO of a company is out traveling and there's possibly a disgruntled customer that makes the same threat. At that point, the context is completely different. Um, and you need, you need to understand that. 
But in order to do that in real time method, you need to be looking at both, you need to be looking at all that context um, at the time that event arrives and then making a decision. That's a great example of using some kind of a social media or some kind of context be, uh, around each of these events. And at Picnic now looks like you are building a platform that uses some of these social engineering signals to build a better model and predict some of this. Uh, at Picnic, can you tell me a little bit more about uh, how useful is it for you to get these signals in real time? How, how important is real time for you? How important is it for the platform to be able to react quickly rather than react late to the signals that are arriving to your software? Yeah, so social engineering is it's an interesting problem area that really hasn't been, been tackled yet in, in cybersecurity. So the way that we're approaching it is ultimately this is a data problem because in order for a social engineering attack to be like successfully conducted against an individual, you need to know something about that individual and have some kind of information. Because um, really what you're trying to do social engineering is gain someone's trust and then execute an attack. So the way that for us, at least from a real-time perspective, it's extremely critical to catch um, like leaks or compromising information before it gets like out there and like publicly available and people have copied it and it's all over the all over the internet, which case like it's, it's too late. Um, so like just quick identification of any kind of compromising information with regards to a company is is critical like that time to discovery and then remediation is is imperative if you if you want to be successful in this realm um the other thing that uh we need to consider too are is the type of information that people are communicating um and we've seen these attacks um over the past couple of years where like a ceo or a cfo will mention they're going on vacation or they're going to some conference or something like that attackers have taken advantage of this several times and there's plenty of public examples of it, but essentially what will happen is that attacker will see this and then that's when they will choose to conduct their attack. So they'll contact, um, say like the comptroller of a company um, acting as like the CEO or the CFO. Well, they're out like on vacation or a conference, they have no way to rebuttal it. And if they can relay that information and gain that person's trust, well, guess what? There's gonna be a few million dollars missing when they come back. Um, so being able to identify um, until like, hey, the CEO, like, hey, you should not be mentioning that you're going to this conference, like being able to catch that um, in near real time and have that get taken down, that prevents the attackers from seeing that information and, and hopefully prevents them from conducting their attack. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. So how, um, you mind telling us just a little bit about um, just Picnic in depth and how uh, Picnic helps? Yeah, so the, the main way that Picnic helps out um, corporations is that we, we focus on the individuals. Uh, Picnic actually stands for a problem in chair, not in computer. Uh, um, as I was kind of mentioning before, earlier is the cybersecurity industry has done a very good job hardening the technology that we all use. Um, but the cybersecurity industry has not done a very good job so far of hardening humans. So humans at the end of the day, are the weakest link um, for any organization. So, and I'm sure you, I'm sure most people um, listening to this have gone through the um, kind of like little security training you can get, which is a couple of slides talking about the different attacks and you get conducted against you. Well, uh, I think we can all pretty much admit that's not really helpful um, for an actual employee. So 
one of the things that Picnic tries to do is protect employees of our clients, both at home and at work. Uh, with the theory being that if you're safer at um, home, you'll be safer at work and vice versa. So we do that um, through a combination of really like targeted education and remediation capabilities. So a great example of this would be looking at someone's LinkedIn profile. And we see there that they mentioned, hey, I'm in charge of wiring funds for this corporation. Like we'll actually mention, we'll actually pull that snippet out of LinkedIn, be like, hey, like you're mentioning that you wire funds, attackers will then start targeting you because of this, um, like financially motivated threat actors, because they will want you to be wiring funds to them. So we would recommend, you know, taking the snippet and, you know, rewording it so it doesn't mention the word wire transfer. Um, similarly, like remediation capabilities, uh, one of the, one of the, I guess, uh, the features that are some of our clients are most excited about right now is uh, removing people from data brokers. So in the United States, there's a lot of public information out there about all of us as individuals. Um, that's just kind of the way that our, our society has been built, um, which is both a, a blessing and a curse. Uh, from a security perspective, it's, it's very much a curse because this makes it really easy for our threat actors to go out and discover information on people. And these data brokers, um, what they do is they make the attacker's job really easy. These data brokers go out to all these different public sources, aggregate all this information up into a nice little package and then sell it to you. Um, you can get this on, on anybody in the United States. So what we've been doing is removing all that information from the data brokers. Uh, by US law, they are required to remove your information if you ask them to. So we help, um, one of the ways we're helping out our clients is that we'll, for all of their employees, we'll bow to all these different data brokers and, and remove their information for them. Um, thus, you know, kind of reducing their, their attack surface and making it that much harder for the attackers to find information they can leverage um, in a social engineering attack. As humans in the security realm, humans are the weakest link. <laughs> Always are. Um, yeah, it's true. It's true. Um, okay, cool. So speed round coming up. I'm going to fire off a couple questions to you, Matt. Um, and we'll go from there. So can you share um, data and AI trends that you're excited about in the security analytics space? Yeah. Um, one of my favorite trends is explainability of AI and ML models. Um, before you used to be able to just say, hey, like my model said this um, and the client would be happy. Now the client wants to know why the model is saying something. Um, it's not good enough just to throw an alert. They wanna know why it was thrown. Um, we touched on this already, but extended detection or response, I think is only going to continue to grow. Um, and, and related to that, again, like I mentioned, like high fidelity alerts. Another thing that I'm, I'm really interested in, this space is growing quite rapidly is something called user behavior analytics. So this is analyzing the behavior of users um, and determining based on that behavior if you know, there's a, a potential threat. Um, and then finally, like just real-time analysis, the whole industry is moving towards a kind of real-time standpoint because you need to know like the state of your system right now. You need to know like where that potential threat is right now. You don't need to know it an hour from now because an hour from now is too late. Yeah, the damage is already done at that point. Next question, what are, um, what's causing these trends to take shape now? Like what enablers have you seen on the technology front to usher these trends in? 
Yeah, just in general, like I mentioned before, just the industry getting very good at certain domains. So like network, email, server, and, and so on, but just all the noise being generated. And this is where that extended detection response really comes in. Um, it's just reducing that amount of noise because the defenders don't have 30 minutes to go and triage like an alert, especially when there's 500 alerts sitting in their queue. Um, and we touched on this, just humans being the weakest link. I think there's going to be more and more attention on how do we you know, continue to secure humans themselves. Um, insider threats are becoming also more and more of an issue. Again, but again, like we've done a very good job in the industry of hardening the perimeter, but you know, a disgruntled employee is inside the perimeter. And at, at that point, there's a lot of damage that they can do. Mm -hmm. um, and again, like the real time part is like telling a client about a potential security threat, like, you know, 24 hours down the road because you're, you know, you're doing some kind of batch analysis over the day's worth of events, like it's too late at that point. Um, especially if we're thinking like ransomware attacks, which are, are huge these days. Um, at that point, they're already locking down servers um, and you've lost that data. Indeed. What are the challenges that engineering and data teams then are facing uh, when implementing or, or, or expanding security analytics features? just the wide variety of data formats across security products and the lack of any kind of like standard communication method um, is a huge issue. So once we start getting into extend detection response, like how do you structure this data and put into a, a common format that you can actually work with um, across all these different products? Um, also just the sheer amount of data being generated, like just the amount of data being generated from like a single firewall product is, is staggering. And then that's just one security product that a company has. They've got, you know, tens of others. Um, dealing with the with the time aspect, especially across disparate pieces of data, like the the time series problem is is very difficult in cybersecurity, especially trying to correlate, you know, the the different events across time. Um, understanding what is worth actually tracking is another critical thing. Um, we, like it's just, it's impossible to track anything. So being able to identify what is actually critical and what you need to be tracking and what you need to be communicating to your, to your customer. Um, and just like storing and managing all of this raw data, um, it, it is a, it's mind boggling how much information you can gather from just a single, single client in, in a day. Awesome. So, then how do you see real-time analytics benefiting the security analytics space? Yes, so because these threat actors are um, executing their attacks so much so much quicker now because they know that their time to discovery is, is being reduced, um, we need to step up as a cybersecurity industry and identify and stop threat actors like immediately. Um, so this is all about, in my opinion, like reducing that time to discovery, which will reduce that time to remediation. Um, being able to do that in near real time, um, I think, I think is going to become more and more critical as we, as we continue to move forward. Um, and most importantly, I think from a defender standpoint is they need to know, um, at right now, like what the current state of their infrastructure is and in, in their various systems. Um, they don't want to know what, you know, the state of the system was an hour ago. That, that's not useful when they're trying to, trying to chase a threat actor, you know, through their network. And then what would you say, because you've got some, some like a variety of 
kind of companies that you've worked at, both size and scope. So what's the biggest difference that you've seen when building um, real-time analytics at a larger, more established organization versus you know a startup uh, in the early days? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, the biggest difference I have found is the, the pressure in particular around time. Um, because as a startup, like you don't have time to deliver a solution. You need to deliver a solution now that's valuable to your clients because you need to be generating revenue for the business. Um, you know, and, and larger organizations, they can afford to, you know, let a team work for a year or two to develop like the right product. Um, in a startup, you have to be developing that right product and it needs to be functional right now. Um, so because of that, um, you really need to understand where and when it's okay to make compromises, um, either um, from like what kind of tools you're purchasing or what you're building out versus understanding like what you can actually deliver. Awesome, and last question. Uh, thank you so much for your time, obviously. Um, last question, if you can give one piece of advice to data and engineering leaders uh, and builders on real-time analytics, what would that be and why? Yeah, my, my uh, advice would be start small. Um, Real-time analytics is, is hard. It is a, a massive challenge. And if you try to boil the ocean um, and take like something that you're running maybe right now on batch and implement it in a real-time analytics solution, um, it, it's likely to fail if you try to do it all at once. My, my advice would be to start small um, and especially like understand the data that you're, that you're pulling in and un really understand the analytics that you wanna generate from it. Um, so you know, starting small will help you start to really understand that data understand where there's possible bottlenecks um, with your solution um, and then really force you to think about, okay, like what analytics do I need to actually be delivering usually to like the business or to your clients. Sage advice for sure. That'll do it for this episode. Um, this has been extremely informative um, and, and ha having come from the security industry myself, um, I see this uh, as being, you know, hugely helpful for, uh, the folks that are in the industry. So I'm looking forward to sharing this um, with the folks out there. Thank you, Matt. Check out picnicscore.com. Um, I know you guys are, are you know, sharing sharing the company and the news of the company um, now. So we're looking forward to, to being part of that. Uh, thank you, Druba, for uh, being part of today's discussion. Um, and, uh, and I wish you luck, Matt. If you found this discussion insightful, please share it. Um, the Why Wait podcast is brought to you by Rockset. We at Rockset have built a real-time analytics cloud-based platform that can add value to the use cases that, um, uh, that we were discussing today. Check us out at rockset.com. Uh, you can try us for free for two weeks uh, where you'll actually receive a $300 um, in trial credits for checking us out and giving us a shot. Please subscribe and comment. Uh, thanks once again for joining us and uh, stay tuned for our next episode. Cheers, everyone.